Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special, and dare I say magical, episode of Stern Chats. We're joined in the studio today by Susan Jurvix, who is the CEO of Pottermore from 2013 to 2017 and graduate of the Stern Langone program. In her tenure as CEO, Susan transformed Pottermore into the site we know and love today, the digital heart of the wizarding world, with fan features and previously unreleased writing from J.K. Rowling. Yeah, that's right. And in addition to Pottermore and being an NYU Stern alum, Susan has had a long career in digital entertainment and media at companies such as Nickelodeon, Mattel, and Sony. In many ways, Justin, her fingerprints have been on many aspects of our childhood. It's so true, Stephen. I'm super excited to hear from Susan and am admittedly a huge Harry Potter fan. When the books came out, I would do nothing but eat, sleep, and read. Same here. I think this is going to be a really fun episode. And as always, a huge shout out to Yen Cheng, our esteemed executive producer for all her work and everyone behind the booth. With that said, I'm ready to be transported to a whole other world. Should we get another episode started? Let's jump on the Hogwarts Express. Cue that whimsical music. Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Stephen Avila. And I'm Justin Katchis, and with us today is Susan Jurevix, NYU Stern Langone graduate. Susan, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Justin. Hi, Stephen. It's a pleasure. So, Susan, in true Stern Chats fashion, could you introduce yourself to our audience? You know me as a 1996 Langone alum. What you may not know about me is that I'm a brand and business builder, someone who unlocks value for brands operating at the nexus of culture, community, and commerce. I'm a working mother, a global citizen, having lived in Sydney and London, and now in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a prior marathon runner and home renovator, and I'm a creative at heart. Amazing. Well, what an impressive background and a lot of cool and fun, interesting titles. And we're excited to have you because what you didn't say in your introduction is your very impressive professional background, ranging from your time at Nickelodeon to Mattel to Sony, and most recently, uh, and we're very excited to talk to you about today as well, uh, your time at Pottermore. I think we're very curious to hear why you came to Stern and what was interesting to you about pursuing an MBA, uh, particularly in the Langone program. Sure, and I think you're asking a really great question to open our dialogue today. When I graduated from undergrad with an art degree, it was a recession economy. And I looked at businesses and companies and brands that I thought were recession-proof. My logic at the time was that if you didn't have a lot of money to spend, you'd still go to the movies, back when people still were going to the movies as the primary source of entertainment in a pre-Netflix world. And you also would still spend money on smaller treats like nail polish or a lipstick as a female or maybe splurge for a massage. So as luck would have it, I wound up in entertainment and my first job out of school was at Nickelodeon. While I was there, because I had an art degree, I was developing product using intellectual property or characters and patterns and colors that were on television, on cable television. And we were moving them to an off-channel world. 
I became absolutely mesmerized with the way that this IP could be monetized and could make money. And so I decided that I would get an MBA and I applied to Stern. To my delight, I was accepted after a year studying calculus and started here in the early 90s. Well, listen, we can definitely relate to that. So I was wondering if you could describe Stern to us during that time. What was it like? You were coming in with, with this arts, you know, visual arts background. Were there a lot of people at school who also had a similar background who were looking to, to pursue something in, in the vein that you were? Very, very few. This was before Stern's Entertainment Media and Technology Program. Mm-hmm. I will say to Stern's credit, it was a high percentage of international students as well as a high percentage of women um, 20 plus years ago. So again, to Stern's credit for that. But the challenge was that I was in an industry that really was not well known. The concept of licensing, merchandising, ancillary business, IP exploitation, let alone in a digital environment which is now so familiar to people, was really on the cutting edge in the early 90s. So I found myself surrounded by management consultants, bankers, Mm -hmm. um, brand managers Mm -hmm. at traditional CPG companies. And the great news about that is that I had to find my own way and make sure that the degree I was getting was relevant to not only my own business experience, but actually my larger ambitions. And so you majored in marketing and international business. What led you there? I came to Stern because it was in the heart and still is in the heart of New York City. So it has a philosophy around applying real-world concepts and and experiences to a more theoretical background. And I I loved that combination of Mm -hmm. sort of academics and and real-world melding. I thought that was fantastic. I also came to Stern because it was an amazing finance school, and I recognized that that was not a particular strength of mine with an art background, so I wanted to to get that prowess. But what I found was that I was getting very excited about understanding consumer behavior, consumer thinking, consumer preferences. And through going on the international management program, albeit unusual thing to do as a part-timer, having studied in Australia, I was able to add an international business um, you know, minor to my degree. Mm-hmm. I think now at Stern, international business is almost akin to digital. It, it just is. You don't call it out as a separate international business. Mm-hmm. Everything is global, right? Yep. Digital is a really democratic um, element in our, in our world today. So there's not sort of a digital world or digital marketing. It's just all digital. And as you're coming up uh, and getting your MBA, you know, in, in the 90s, can you talk a little bit how that landscape shifted and evolved and, you know, maybe what you saw at the time as the potential for this digital platform um, and how you thought the opportunities would arise, you know, as you progressed in your career? Sure. Some of that goes back, Stephen, to the, the hallmark, I think, of, of NYU and of Stern in particular is really melding the real world experience with academic theory. And what you start to learn in a place like Stern is that you are anticipating how to see around corners, how to understand trends that are anchored deeply in how consumers are behaving and what consumers are choosing to spend money on. You're learning some of that in your classwork, and you're also learning that through your classmates. So I found that when I got to Stern, my eyes were were opened. 
I was learning about jobs I didn't even know that people had and industries that I didn't even know existed because I was coming from a relatively singular place of being a a t-shirt designer or a comic book editor Mm -hmm. or a game developer. And those sound really exciting to other people here at Stern, but that was just my world. So then I became understanding what investment bankers did or what management consultants did or what healthcare practitioners did, because Mm -hmm. that was the sort of diversity that was going on while while I was here. Mm -hmm. And when you think back on your Stern experience uh, over the course of your time here, Are there particular professors or speakers or classes that kind of stand out to you as as seminal moments of your time here that influenced what you did afterwards and and how your career progressed? Yes, and I love that you've asked me that question. Feel free to give as many shout-outs as you want. Yes, yes. (laughs) You know, Stern has just an incredible um, intellectual capital here. And one thing that I am so proud of is in the evolution of of Stern and the academic teaching and the sort of caliber of professors that are here, um, you are getting the same education if you're a part-time student versus a full-time student. So there's not a series of adjuncts that only teach at night Mm -hmm. um, to part-timers. I had an amazing entrepreneurship professor, uh, Professor Nathanson. I also had the privilege of working very closely with Sam Craig, a marketing professor who was chair while I was here, as well as um, helping build the EMT discipline. And I, I lectured in his course for almost 14 years and just went to his retirement party Friday night. What a, what a beautiful wow. celebration for such a celebrated professor, having celebrated almost 40 years here. Wow. Um, I think I've been through four or five deans, from Dean West when I first started to, I want to make sure I don't forget anyone, to George Daly, to Tom Cooley, to, um, who are we forgetting here? Peter Henry. Hello, Peter Henry, one of the amazing, amazing economists and professors, um, and, and delighted with our current dean at the moment who's just assumed his role. He's, he's an incredible leader and, and so thrilled to have him leading the school. I've also spent some time also with the undergrad professors and the undergrad management mm. from when Sally Blount Lyon was here, who's now in the Midwest, as well as Gita, who's a terrific um, you know, professor and, and, and guru as well. So just a real wealth of, of talent at Stern. Well, thank you for being such a model for not just an active student, but an active alumni and being super involved. And you know that's personified by you being here in the studio today. So we really appreciate you taking the time. I'm curious to know, you know, as you pursued your MBA, did you have a pivot in mind or another industry that was in your sights that you wanted to pursue after your MBA? And maybe what that looked like after you graduated and how um, your career trajectory may have shifted from there. What I was really excited about when I got my degree, which will not be a surprise to either of you, is to run a PL. And that's something that for females actually can be a little bit hard to achieve. It's a little bit elusive. I found that I was really interested, as I mentioned before, how intellectual property can be monetized Mm -hmm. and can actually be a sustainable and ongoing revenue stream for a company. Um, And so when I graduated from Stern, I wound up at Mattel running a Barbie division. I was one of four global heads on Barbie. And it was a really terrific exercise for me to look at all the components of basically a manufacturing business and understand what levers you could play with and pull with to improve your margin, to drive top-line revenue, which doesn't always equate to 
improving margin to seeing that the little changes that you could be making on a business of scale that would actually have a pretty dramatic effect on your overall business. So you talk about this concept of culture and commerce and the intersection of those two. And you've been at some pretty influential brands Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, their impact on on kind of popular culture. Mm -hmm. What is it about pop culture and how you monetize it that drew you? And then how do you think about that now versus when you first started? So the... The monetization of brands and IP and products and pop culture is still rooted in a really primal, emotional setting. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of spending 10 years on James Bond, and I'm dating myself now, guys, but uh, 25 years on Spider-Man and four years on Harry Potter. I I joke that there are all these boys in my past, right, that are really well known. (laughs) If you're going to have some men in your past, those are the ones to have. Yeah, those are good ones to have. And, um, you know, fundamentally, there are universal themes in all that content that's very important and primal and meaningful. And I think what happens is that you become attached to those themes. You know, one of my favorite lines from the Spider-Man series that, of course, I don't attribute to a prior president, but I attribute to Mm Spider-Man, is with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. And, And you react to those things because they're defining touchstones of where we are as a culture and a sociopolitical environment. And when you react to that, you want to own a piece of it. You want to make that yours. And understanding what those interests are what those things are that become cultural touchstones is is something that's always resonated with me and frankly is actually really a passion point of mine but also important to me to to work on things like that and to advance things like that and to find the deeper meaning in some of these businesses and franchises and pieces of content that unlock value and and meaning for us as a culture so it is a crass way to say that we're going to exploit and monetize the IP. Mm-hmm. But really underneath that is finding ways for these these elements to give bigger meaning to, to culture and to individuals around a movement. So while it's not IP at the moment, I would even say things like the Me Too movement or the feminist movement are bearing some of those same ideas around cultural touchstones and, and meaning for people. How was having an art background uh, beneficial for you as you worked on these storied franchises? Hearing you talk about James Bond and Spider-Man and Harry Potter, how did that allow you to navigate the industry from a business perspective, but also inject your creative and artful influence as well? You know, to my parents' chagrin, Stephen, I started school in a pre-law program, which clearly you understand that leads to law school and then that leads to (laughs) being a lawyer. Uh, And I found myself one day doodling in my notebook in my poli-sci class and and just realizing that that wasn't me. So when I chose to study art at a school that is not known um, for a very strong arts program outside of its program in art history, which is also an academic enterprise, I found that I was following a passion and I didn't quite know what to do with it. But one of the lessons was that I would have to bank on myself to find a way to make that monetizable, to make that relevant. So once I graduated with that degree, what I found was that I had a very strong base of critical liberal arts thinking that candidly in the environment we're we're in now, today at least, 
is not going to be replicated by drones or by AI or by any sort of technology. It's still discerning grades, shades of gray. It's still giving meaning. It's still making value judgments. It's still making harder calls. And so because I had an appreciation for the arts, but I had also learned how to construct an argument to rationalize, to explain a creative ethos of something, I think it made me strangely a little bit more competitive in how to work Mm. with creative thinkers, Mm -hmm. in how to understand that it's hard for a creative to Take a meeting at nine o'clock in the morning. I'm generalizing now, but it, it, it and also me, for non-creatives. Yes, yes, <laughs> myself included. Students maybe too, uh, or maybe professors. But it it made me also a bit empathetic because again, underlying a lot of creative, and I think creative is a field that has a lot of definitions to it. Um, it 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 made me empathetic to what goes into the creation of a very personal and intimate work. And how amazing it is to be able to share that in a public space and, frankly, how scary and humbling that is to be able to do that. One of my defining moments was a decision I had to make not long after graduation was the recognition that I just didn't have sufficient commercial talent to actually make it as a commercial artist. So I had to find another way to parlay my passion into an environment where I could figure out how to make money. Yeah, it's it's interesting. As you talk about kind of your mindset and your thought process behind all of this, it strikes me that you are the embodiment of the uh, culture and commerce that you were talking about in your work, right? You have this kind of arts background, and then you went to Stern and got this commerce background, and now you're kind of living what you see in your work as, you know, kind of an employee or a person that brings both of those things to the table. So one of the things that we want to talk about is your time at Pottermore. So could you just explain for our audience, what is Pottermore? Sure. So Pottermore is an extension of J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. It's the, We called it the digital heart, and it has two parts to the business. It's a fan site, which is pottermore.com, that you can go to that releases writing from J.K. Rowling, news and information about the franchise of Harry Potter and the wider wizarding world that, of course, has been expanded with this past weekend's launch of the second Fantastic Beasts film, as well as the London and New York and soon-to-be other cities launch of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is when Harry Potter's an adult and sending his own son to Hogwarts, right? Um, and it's, it's really, uh, without being a social network, it's a community platform that authenticates and validates everything going on in the wizarding world. It's also a business-to-business offering, which publishes content in digital form about Harry Potter with partners around the world like Audible, Apple, Amazon, Google, and others to be giving fans another way to consume J.K. Rowling's brilliant writing in digital form. When I moved to London in 2013 to work on Pottermore, there was another piece that we started to interlace through it that I think is, again, in the current theme of, of relevancy in a digital environment of building your wizarding identity through a series of interactive and short-form quizzes that were authored and written by J.K. Rowling, including some of the algorithms that she worked on that would give you your wizarding identity. And I'm realizing I should have told your listeners in my opening, my my Hogwarts and my American wizarding houses and, and where I am and all of that uh, and my wand choice and all of that is part of my wizarding identity. That's part of Pottermore, too. 
Oh, don't you worry, Susan. We have those questions later in the year. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd be very curious to know, you know, you, you've built up this amazing career. How did you end up at Pottermore in the first place? It's a great question. And, you know, it, thank you for, for calling it amazing. I think it's amazing, um, largely because it's it's fun for me to be able to contribute in this way. Um I had spent 13 years at Sony, which was just an unbelievable playground of entrepreneurialism and building internal businesses and incubating them and partnering with probably 300 of Sony's companies in its portfolio, companies like PlayStation, um, Sony Mobile, Electronics, Sony Music, etc. And in my last three years there, Sony had made a commercial investment in J.K. Rowling's company, Pottermore. And through that investment, I partnered with an old boss at the time and mentor of mine, Andy House, the prior global CEO of PlayStation, who at one point in a 13-year career at Sony and 14 bosses was one of my many bosses. And together... 14 bosses? 14 bosses in 13 years, many simultaneously. So, yeah, we can cover that if you want to. (laughs) Um, But Andy and I um, and others helped build an augmented reality and virtual reality gaming platform for the PlayStation 3 called Wonderbook, which was a peripheral. I don't know if you guys are... Are you gamers? Yes. Okay. I, I I was a gamer, I should say. You lost time to game while you went to business school. I did. Okay. Most many other things. The but. extent of my gaming is Mario Kart. <laughs> oh sure. Okay. Well, you'll you'll track with me. But the the Wonder Book was, which is now retired, was a platform peripheral that went with your PlayStation Three. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm moving my hands like it's a physical book, and you might know the PlayStation Move controller or the Nintendo Wii. Mm-hmm. But imagine that you would take content. That J.K. Rowling wrote that's incredible content, and you would use, I'm acting out now, you would use your motion controller to spellcast. As to, like a wand. As a wand. Ah. And to learn things like the, you know, water spells and fire spells. And because you're acting this out, you're really unlocking your own imagination because what you're seeing on your screen, which, by the way, from Sony was probably your Bravia television, if we had anything to say about it, <laughs> you're, you're unlocking um, amazing 3D sort of VR and AR content on the screen that's showing you what it looks like and you're moving in real time, right? You can see me acting out here. Um, and so when we built that business um, with PlayStation, over the course of building that business, as much as anyone gets to know J.K. Rowling, I got to know J.K. Rowling and the amazing team of her agent and her publicists and her managers and people that are in her ecosystem to work with. Um, and, of course, Warner Brothers and the publishing partners like Bloomsbury and Scholastic. Mm-hmm. And as I got to know them over a series of two to three years, um, the individual running Joe's company, running Pottermore, decided to go back to more traditional publishing Charlie Redmayne in A Small World Story is now the brother of Eddie Redmayne, has Mm. always been the brother of Eddie Redmayne, the star of Fantastic Beasts as a series. And Charlie runs HarperCollins in the UK. And when Charlie went back to HarperCollins to run that business, it created what fans of J.K. Rowling's might call a casual vacancy. (laughs) And uh, that's when I moved to London to work on Pottermore. So you crossed the Atlantic Ocean to take on this new opportunity which, as a huge Harry Potter fan, would be incredibly exciting. What was your charge when you got there? What was the ask of you coming in as CEO? The Brits would call it going from strength to strength because Pottermore was really groundbreaking when it launched in 2012. 
And imagine, by the way, being the Sony spokesperson after, at the time, what was the largest data breach in Sony's history, millions and millions of PlayStation accounts stolen, and then through the line of all those Sony portfolio companies I was mentioning, from Sony Music to Sony Mobile, other accounts being stolen. And I'm the spokesperson for Sony's investment in Pottermore at its launch to say, oh, hi, here is, you know, a COPPA compliant data platform targeting kids that's going to have a quasi-social network effect yeah. to, mm. to run this. Um, so when Pottermore launched, it was really incredible. Um, and it had its own direct-to-consumer platform to sell ebooks directly to consumers in a way um, bypassing Amazon. But when I got there in going from strength to strength, what that really required was to rethink the entire business model, mm -hmm. candidly, and to unearth and open up a wide range of opportunities for the company to say, what does it look like two to three years from now, which in a digital world's an eternity. But what we knew when I went there in the fall of 2013, um, Justin, was that there would be what I call a bookend to the franchise. There would be a prequel of Fantastic Beasts, which, if you aren't that familiar with the story, is 70 years before Harry Potter went to Hogwarts. So it's the entire sort of Wizarding World mythology, but set through the eyes of different series of characters. And the other part of the bookend, as I mentioned, is the Cursed Child Broadway play, West End play, a very different way of, of understanding the franchise. But Harry Potter's now an adult and wrangling with very different issues than when he was in the middle of the series that you would know, the seven mm -hmm. books when he was the boy wizard going to Hogwarts, right? So in thinking through that and understanding what do we want this business to look like and be contributing to the P&L, to the fans, to the legacy of J.K. Rowling, to society as lofty as that sounds, to Warner Brothers as a key partner in this franchise, what, what do we want this business to think and what do we want it to be? It really required us to clarify the positioning of it mm -hmm. about unlocking imagination and then to figure out ways in which we were going to be building on offerings for consumers that would delight and inspire them and along the way get the company to profitability. So what audience do you have in mind when you're building this universe at Pottermore? You know, and I think about the original books coming out, and I think probably for a lot of our listeners, you know, we were young children, but fell in love with it, followed uh, the franchise into movies, and you mentioned the shows and the prequels and whatnot that are coming out now. And I'm curious, you know, when you're creating and, and building a Pottermore are you focused on fans that have been there from the beginning? Are you bringing in new people? What, what were some of the surprises of the people that were flocking to the Pottermore website? So uh, I, I'm going to guess I'm a little bit older than you guys. And uh, talking about what it was like to go over there candidly was also humbling because I have a very healthy respect and affection and love for the franchise. But I am not a super fan. I was a little bit older. I was in my late 20s, early 30s when the first book came out in 1997. And so I had watched that franchise from afar, but I didn't grow up as a decade of knowing that from a film perspective, Daniel Radcliffe was Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I had already come of age. In fact, I think I remember reading the, the books on my honeymoon or something. Um, so what happens when you have to think about a business like that in this daunting and amazing and incredible franchise 
is is what I've talked to some of the EMT students about as well, because this is really sort of like a, a live case study, right, mm-hmm. for, for class uh, and for our listeners here today. Um, your temptation is to go very broad and to say, oh, this is a big and beloved franchise. And in a film world, we'd say it's a four-quadrant audience. It's male and female. It's over and under 18 which basically is everybody, <laughs> right? And you'll hear, you'll hear publishers of Harry Potter say, it goes from 8 to 80. What you're realizing, though, in a digital world, and I'll, I'll come back to the digital piece in a second because that has some very real constraints around it. Mm-hmm. And one thing you'll know about creatives is we love constraints because they force you to work in a box. But... But and unlock some creative thinking. Got to have a deadline, right? Yes, yes. Deadlines and constraints are amazing. <laughs> but the other thing I would say about it is that what's happening now is an evolution of marketing. Is that we are now an audience of of niches. We're not just a scattershot broad audience. We're an audience of niches, and it's passion points that you get to unlock about that. So when Pottermore first started, and it was. It was built in in sort of early, you know, 2009-ish for a little while. Um, And you might remember this when the predominant content programming language was Flash. Oh, yeah. Remember the few (laughs) minutes that that worked in the space and didn't work on iPads? I do Remember that language? Okay. I updated that probably a thousand times. Yes, yes. So when Pottermore first came out, it was intended to target, in air quotes, the next generation, Mm -hmm. which everyone in a shorthand way assumed was kids. In a digital world, to be marketing to kids means that you have a series of legislation around you for data protection and privacy Mm -hmm. that's really quite serious, right? And we look at what's happened at a more macro level with the sort of challenges that Facebook is is in right now with Russian interference and data privacy and collection and management and consumers trading their data for sort of discounts and and swaps and things. And that's becoming quite a currency, right? Our own data. Mm -hmm. But even a few years ago, that was not as prevalent. But that that's quite a serious offering to undertake making something targeting a sub-13 audience for kids when it's not meshing with a social platform where the sign-up age is 13 plus, mm-hmm. right? So what, what in a Pottermore sense, what we needed to do were two different things. We needed to partner closely with Warner Brothers to understand all the micro audiences in the franchise. And there are many. And then we needed to actually understand through things as, as wonky, but I get really excited about like the data logs, who was actually using the service. And what we found was that there was a little bit of a mismatch in the in the days of Pottermore when I walked into the audience, which was it was targeting kids, but the biggest users of the platform were actually adults 28 to 32, which just given Stephen your opening question to me makes tons of sense because that audience was about 9 to 12 years old in 1997 when the first book came out. Guilty. And so had that had that arc of growing up with the franchise, right? And understood that that Daniel Radcliffe in a film sense was Harry Potter and that there were seven years of a Hogwarts wizarding school and even from Pottermore understood that there were many other wizarding schools around the world. Isn't mm-hmm. that exciting? So from, from that lens, we really had to say, we've got a different product offering for a different consumer. And our core centric, if you think about sort of a series of concentric circles, our core circle is going to be millennials. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there's a gender split, too, where it's about 70, 30 females. And and those female millennial consumers are going to be our sweet spot. And we're going to then arc out from there 
And eventually you're going to get to a really niche category of super fans or role players or live Quidditch players. Mm. That is a thing. I've seen it. Yeah. I participated in it, actually. (laughs) Oh, God, guys. You're super fans. (laughs) I have a lot to learn from you. What's interesting is is that not only are we super fans and we interact with Pottermore and that's how we get news, um, but also when we, you know, have kids or the next generation, um, you know, our friends have kids, whatever it is, they will also kind of use that as a platform to kind of engage with the Harry Potter wizarding world. One of the questions I had when you talk about micro audiences is people have such an emotional connection to the Harry Potter series. Like when I think about Harry Potter and the impact of reading those books had on my childhood, right? There was always a, a fight in my hassle, household. Who could read the book first, right? And then, it would, you know, waterfall from there. Yeah, same here. So my question is because it's so emotional and so personal for so many people and there are so many different niches, how do you s- satisfy everyone? Well, the first is I don't think you set out to satisfy every niche. I think that, and by the way, I think this is true of Potter, and, and Potter might be extreme in the, the the passion of the community and the sheer size of the audiences of the communities. But I think you could make this argument for anything. You know, mm-hmm. most recently I was at Beauty running the beautiful Bare Minerals brand, and I think you could say the same for the individual product category that put that brand on the map, Loose Mineral Powder Foundation. So some of it is understanding in a commercial sense the intersection between the passion points of the audiences against the commercial opportunity it represents and what prioritization that looks like for you in terms of where people are interacting with the brand as well as where they're giving up their what we call share of wallet. Usually share of heart leads to share of wallet. It's usually not the other way around. I like that saying. Yeah, Yeah, share of heart to share of wallet. But sometimes you have to go beneath that to really understand that there are audiences, for example, that may have huge, huge passion points about a brand, but actually may not be engaging with you in a meaningful way commercially. They may buy from you from a limited time frame, or they may be a very strong advocate for you from a word of mouth perspective, but they just may not be a consumer for whatever reason. And so one of the most amazing things I think right now in the in the space of marketing and what's happening is that you can be unpacking using all the data you've got to understand the thinking and the reasons behind why that is, and then figure out if you're going to be, you know, charging your activities in a different way. Are you going to be taking an emphasis on those consumers, for example, in Brazil, who are super passionate Harry Potter fans, but don't necessarily transact with you, it may be simply that you're not transacting in their currency and they don't have credit cards to be buying the types of content that you're putting out online. Sometimes there's there's really rational understanding and, and arguments for just making a couple quick changes that you could be monetizing these audiences. But the short answer, I think, to your question, Justin, is really it's about prioritization and seeing the intersection between the passion point and the commercial opportunity. When looking at this universe of Harry Potter, you know, whether it's the books, the movies, the Broadway show, Pottermore, there's this incredible high caliber of quality to everything 
that comes out. You know, I just had the opportunity to see the Broadway show and was just blown away. Oh, it's wonderful, it, isn't it? It's yeah, it's incredible. And I'm curious to know while you're at Pottermore, you know, how do you maintain the integrity of the product and the quality? And you know, if that's working with J.K. Rowling herself, and maybe you can talk about your relationship with her and you know the creative vision behind this project. Sure. So she's a brilliant talent. I would also say that all the other founders and creators and creatives that I've had the privilege to work with are equally brilliant in, in their own way. Um, one of the nonprofit boards that I'm doing some work with right now that I'm also have the privilege of being considered for a board seat is, is Brick, which is the Brooklyn arts media team mm-hmm. that is sponsoring thousands of incredible artists and doing amazing things. And I'd like to think that everyone has a little bit of J.K. Rowling in them to be brilliant in their own way. So the concept of quality almost has to go back to a, a set of standards that you yourself believe in as well and hold to from a couple specific simple principles. When you work for a writer, for example, it's pretty non-negotiable that everything will be grammatically correct and spelled correctly. (laughs) And I know that sounds really basic, but that's not always the case. When you work for an illustrator to be able to be true to that craft and to be deeply respectful of that as a medium is is just another way. So I think there's an element of understanding the definition of quality back to the audience and also finding ways in which you can be having proof points of that quality very tangibly delivered every every single day and actually through every single experience. We talk a lot in the the different sort of um, what I'd call system thinking, ways of connecting all the different disparate dots that something like commercial um, customer service is just as important as that intersection and that reaction and that interchange with a customer service rep is actually just as important as having a beautifully designed hang tag Mm -hmm. or having a social posting be just as relevant and just as incredibly written and architected as an outdoor billboard or, you know, the, the, the beginning of a, a video. So it's really clearly defining quality as a term and weaving that through everything you do very consistently. It sounds easy. It's actually really, really hard. So what accomplishment are you most proud of at Pottermore? What a hard question, Justin. Um, first and foremost, I would say continually delighting a very discerning audience. The, the fact that the two of you continue to use the platform is really incredible. Um, and and that, that, I think, is incredibly important because without the fandom and without the, you know, just delight from the fandom, there, there is no business there. But I would also say equally getting the company to profitability to a point where it has runway in such incredible partnerships with partners like Apple or Audible or Amazon or any of the other Google, any of the other publishers that, that we've worked with around the world is something I think that that makes the business continually relevant and also gives it runway to continue to innovate. And innovation is is something that's really important to this franchise. So I'm 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 really pleased with that. So what's next for you on the horizon? You know, you've you've both reminded me that I tend to operate at this intersection of culture and community and commerce and content for brands that I can genuinely believe in. It 
never occurred to me to be moving back to New York because of Brexit. That was that was a surprise to our family. And we've had four amazing years in London, and we're delighted to be back in New York. So I am actually actively looking for what's next that I could have a passion point at that nexus. Will we be seeing you around campus for some more guest lectures? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I hope please. so. At the very least, come back onto the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. I'd be remiss to not ask. So what is your Hogwarts house, your Patronus? You, you mentioned this at the top of the program. Oh, yes. So I'm a Gryffindor. I've taken the test three times, including once in front of the media, which was a, a little bit <laughs> daunting. High pressure situation. High pressure. And actually twice in front of J.K. Rowling, which is stressful, too. Um, That's amazing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm pleased with Gryffindor. You know, it... it, it that's fine. I, I would have preferred to be a Ravenclaw because I think they're a little bit smarter. I but I, that's fine. My Ilvermorny house, the American Wizarding School, is a wampus. I think I might have preferred to be a Thunderbird. But what I understand is that the Gryffindor-Wampus combination is a bit unusual. Mm. And my Patronus, which I think I'm the happiest about, having taken that test twice as well as a fox. Mm. I love that. I was a little upset to learn it's common. But I, I, I do love it. That's a good animal. Yes. I think mine would be a koala. Oh, <laughs> I can see that. I've been told that uh, I would probably be somewhat in a Gryffindor-type home, and I think that's what I resonate most with as well. So Stephen's the president of our class, so he's a natural-born leader. I could see that for both of you. Co-president. Oh, and you. I was the president of my class. Oh, you Is were? that right? Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> I was the Steven of 1995 and 6. That's amazing. Well, I'm the That's Susan amazing. of 2018. So. <laughs> Anything else you guys want to cover? Um, you know, actually, there was one thing that did, one question that came to mind. Sure. And, or maybe we can even conclude with this. But I'd be curious what advice you have for MBA graduates as we enter the workforce and maybe even with an EMT perspective, I know a lot of folks come to Stern that want to be involved in entertainment media, but you know it's it's a harder journey, frankly. Um, and so, just what advice would you have for our classmates that are pursuing that 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 path? So the first thing I would say um, to your classmates, and also even to any alum, I think it's it's relevant here as well, is that you really need to find your passion point. And what you just love to do and, and how you love spending your time and find a way to, to relay that into a job in a, in a corporate setting. I think that the environment now is very healthy. I think the MBA is more relevant than ever, particularly in an EMT discipline, but even in an entrepreneurship discipline or disciplines that may not have traditionally looked at the MBA as something so valuable. It's a great job market. But I think that you also, as a Stern student, have to figure out where you're going to be adding value. And I don't just mean commercial value. I think that when you graduate from here is the, the Peter Parker line, with great power comes great responsibility. And we've all had the privilege of having incredible education and faculty and administrators at Stern, fellow classmates and alumni. And so a lot's been given to us, and it's our opportunity now to turn around and use those gifts in the world. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. Aww. And is there anything else you'd like to talk about or add? Shout Otherwise, out to your kids, whatever it is. You know. Yeah. Shout out to my kids. <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, no, I think we're good, I right? I think so, too. Okay. I think this was great. Fantastic. Susan, thank you so much for all your time. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.